Dante the Pilgrim and his guide Virgil have arduously climbed out of the sixth of the evil pouches, the sixth of the Malabolgia of hell in the giant landscape of fraud, the eighth circle of hell. They have gotten to the top, to the last crag, and Dante, out of breath, has sat down on the ground, not able to carry on. This is a moment for Virgil to step forward and get to business. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk through Dante's masterwork comedy. And as you just heard, we are coming out of the sixth pit and going toward the seventh. We're in Canto 24 of Inferno. We're at lines 46 through 60, coming close to the midpoint of the Canto. We still don't actually know what's in the seventh pit yet. We got to Get there. Boy, the sixth pit has lasted a long time. Not as long as Baratry, the fifth pit, did. But if you just think about how long we've been here, from the slide down to meeting the hypocrites to humiliating Virgil to the arduous climb back out, and now finally the last gasp, truly gasp, of the sixth pit. Here we are at lines 46 through 60 of Canto 24. Sheesh, you've got to stop being so lazy, my master said. Settled into downy pillows, nobody gets famous, nor stretched out under a nice coverlet. Without fame, you'll empty out your life and leave no more of a blot on this earth than smoke in the air or foam on the water. So get up! Conquer your breath with the same spirit that conquers all its battles. If it doesn't wave the white flag at its own heavy body, there's a long ladder that you've yet to climb. It's not enough just to get away from these hypocrites. If you get what I'm saying, force yourself to get going. Well, I got up, pretending not to be as out of breath as I was, and said, Go on. I'm strong and steadfast. There's our passage. Virgil's tongue lashing of the pilgrim who is out of breath from the climb. This is an interesting passage with several little bits in it that we want to talk about. And we want to start out by talking about Virgil and that tongue lashing. We want to talk a little bit about a growing thematic that will happen with Virgil. We want to talk somewhat about that weird bit about waving a white flag at its own body or surrendering to its own heavy body. We want to talk about what is the long ladder left to climb. And finally, a little bit about perhaps a last joke in the passage before we pass to the seventh of the evil pouches. So let's get started. Virgil says, sheesh, you've got to stop being so lazy. And then this bit settled into downy pillows. Nobody gets famous nor stretched out under a nice coverlet. Hey, you know what? If you lounge about all day, you're not going to win any fame in any way because lying abed is nice, but <laughs> it's not going to get you anywhere. I love this notion of downy pillows and coverlets here in the landscape of hell where everything is so gross and mucky and filthy and disgusting. This sudden vision of a really nice 
bed somewhere, which must in some way be a comment from the poet about his own craft. I mean, the craft is hard. And it would be a lot better to just lie around in Con Grande's beautiful beds, or it would be nice to lie around in some warlord's medieval bedroom and, you know, I don't know what, have your breakfast brought to you on a tray. It must be a comment about the difficulty of the poetry itself, and it's put in Virgil's mouth. But it's not just Virgil's mouth. He says, without fame, you'll empty out your life and leave no more of a blot or a mark. You'll leave no more vestiges of yourself on this earth than smoke in the air and foam on the water. Hello, Brunetto Latini. Hello, Canto 15. There's a callback right here. Remember Dante meets Brunetto Latini out on the burning sands. Remember that Dante at least wants us to believe that Latini is his former teacher. Latini is being punished most likely for the sin of homosexuality, having to run around forever on burning sands. And what is Latini's big counsel? Follow your star. Get famous. And what are Latini's last words to the pilgrim before he departs? Don't forget my own works. Remember them. That's how you'll keep me alive. It's fascinating that before we head into the seventh evil pouch, Virgil has to prompt Dante about fame. You can take this in two ways. Most commentators take it at face value. That is, that Virgil is saying, look, you're never going to get this poem written if you don't go on. You're never going to to, to get the, the, the honor and the accolades you deserve if you just sit there on your butt at the top of the cliff. Go on. We got to go on. Most commentators see this as just straightforward stuff. I see it as a little more ironic because it's so clearly tied to Canto 15 and Brunetto Latini, but I don't see it as fully ironic. If you read this, this is another way to look at it as fully ironic, then you could say that Virgil is offering a kind of non-theological rationale for the comedy. That Virgil is, we could even say, tempting the poet to believe that the comedy is not a statement of revelation, but a statement of artistic grandeur and greatness. And that Virgil's offer of a secular future stands in contrast to the comedy's own notion of itself as a divinely inspired journey across the universe. I don't think you can push it that far. I don't think we should cast a jaundiced eye on Virgil's advice, but I do think that after all that bit about hypocrisy, after all that time down there with the hypocrites, I do think it's so curious that Virgil pushes Dante toward fame. If Dante had another guide here, if Dante had Beatrice right here, let's say Beatrice was the one who had guided him through hell. I know this is ridiculous, but let's pretend. Well, let's pretend St. Lucy guided Dante through hell. We can't hardly imagine either of them saying, hey, get moving, otherwise you're not going to be famous. They would say, hey, get moving because God wants you to. Or, hey, get moving because this journey has been sanctioned from on high. Or, hey, get moving because the Virgin says to. This would not be cast like this in their mouths. This is cast like this in Virgil's mouth. And again, I don't think we should take it ironically, but there may be a way in which the 
difficulty of the journey ahead, moving beyond your poetic father, moving out into a larger landscape that you have to make up, there may be a way in which not doing that would be calling down hypocrisy on yourself. After all, what is Caiaphas, the hypocrite? He stretched out there because he saw the truth, said it, but didn't recognize it. What may be Virgil's link to him? We talked about this, that he may have seen the truth, written it, and yet not been able to act on it or not know fully what he was writing. What may be the problem for the poet? maybe after hypocrisy, the same thing. And maybe thus, if you give out now, the poet is almost saying to himself, you're going to prove yourself a hypocrite. That bit that Virgil says you're going to leave no more mark on the earth than smoke in the air or foam on the water. It's been in commentary for a long time. He's quoting the wisdom of Solomon, uh, chapter 5, and he's quoting this book that the Protestants don't accept in their Bible, but that Roman Catholics do and Orthodox Christians do accept as part of sacred writing, the wisdom of Solomon. And I want to tell you something that's really odd here, and I just want to pause on this because it has nothing to do with the passage, but I find it fascinating. Um, Rossetti is probably the first person to have pointed, Gabriele Rossetti is probably the first person in the mid-19th century to point at the link between the verse in the wisdom of Solomon. And let me read you that verse. That verse goes, because the hope of the ungodly is like thistledown carried by the wind and like a light frost driven by a storm, it is despised burst like smoke before the wind and it passes like a remembrance of a guest who stays but a day and that light frost driven by a storm can also be kind of foam on water it's a little bit difficult to translate right there so that could be more easily translated as foam on water but here's what i find so interesting i think rosetti is the first person to misattribute this Rossetti makes this verse 15 of Wisdom 5. Wisdom chapter 5, verse 15. It's not. It's verse 14. And you know what's so fascinating? That error has gotten into commentary, and it's sat there. I find that just fascinating because I find that this is the way that commentary starts to fold in on itself, and an error gets put down in commentary, and then it just keeps going, and it keeps being repeated over and over again across commentary. Fascinating little problem there. But anyway, they're right. It's Wisdom Chapter 5, but it's verse 14, not 15. Okay, so Brunetta Latini's kind of made an echoey appearance here. Virgil is castigating the pilgrim, and then Virgil says something very interesting. So get up, he says. Conquer your breath with the same spirit that conquers all its battles if it doesn't wave the white flag at its own heavy body. Suddenly, there's a problem of a mind-body dualism. Let's talk about this just for a minute. Virgil has just basically said that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's kind of recast that New Testament phrase around here. But what he's done is he's caused a mind-body split to occur, the flesh versus the soul. This is a common split found in the Gospel of John in the New Testament. It's also just a little whiff of Gnosticism. That is, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's something about the 
body that stops the progress of the mind. It's hard for me not to hear this as part of the arduous task of writing poetry. My fingers cramp. My eyes get tired. I get very tired, bent over my desk. My body's giving out, but my spirit wants to go on. That's all, I think, part of what this emphasis on the body is, that it could stop the spirit's progress. But you should also know that this is a hint of a mind-body dualism that is going to enter the seventh evil pouch in a fundamental and ultimately wild way. And it comes up first here in Virgil's reprimand of Dante. This, we've talked about this, is a typical Dantean technique, that is to drop hints of the larger thematics before they actually hit us. And this is a hint of the mind-body split that is going to hit us full in the face in the seventh pouch ahead. But we're not there quite yet. We still need to talk about this passage. This passage is the start of Virgil's ongoing and soon-to-be-incessant command to hurry up. It is intriguing that Virgil becomes more and more insistent on the speed of the journey after his humiliation from the soothsayers through the hypocrites. Why could that be? Let's just posit some reasons, and I'm not saying any of these is the correct reason. Let's just posit some. Virgil will ultimately become a figure who is just incessantly saying, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. Wait till we get to Purgatorio. It is, it is Virgil's only motivation, not really, but it is Virgil's most steadfast uh, motivation to say, hurry up, hurry up. We got to get up the mountain. We got a date. We got a date at the top. Date with Beatrice. We got a date. We got to go. We got to go. We got to go. It's just over and over again. You want to say, Virgil, cut it out. Come on, just stop. We want to stand and gawk for a minute at the people purgating their sins on Mount Purgatory. But he becomes insistent with this, and it's even going to start to become more and more present in Inferno, Virgil's command to hurry up. Is this a sublimated way for the poet to push himself on? If, in fact, he has dealt with his poetic father, figured out that his poetic father is not inerrant, figured out that his poetic father needs to have a place in his poetry, but not the supreme overarching structure of his poetry, if Dante has figured all that out, is then for Virgil to say, hurry up, hurry up, a sublimated way for the poet to push himself on. Virgil himself gives a sense of renewed urgency to the poem. And is that part of Virgil's function? After all, my poetic master succeeded. Well, in fact, didn't succeed, but we can talk about that in a minute. My poetic master succeeded, so I got to hurry up and keep going. How didn't Virgil succeed? Because the Aeneid is unfinished. Virgil didn't finish his own work. Dante will finish comedy all the way out to an incredible and, dare I say it, orgasmic conclusion. Dante will do what Virgil didn't do. And isn't it interesting that after Virgil's humiliation, Virgil becomes the voice of urgency, 
move, get going, get don't don't wait, don't delay. If you delay, you could be like me and not finish your great work. The poem never says that, but I'm suggesting that may lie underneath the text. Or is this a new role for Dante's mentor? Put this way, don't copy me, but use me to find your fame your purpose. Don't do what I did and don't use me as the basis of your poetry, but think about how I'm remembered. Think about how generations later, I'm still read. So hurry up, get going. That's what awaits you if you finish this poem. Is that a new role for one's mentor? Think about that for a minute. If you're an artist, a painter, let's say, and let's pretend, I don't know, I'm being ridiculous here, but let's pretend that Jackson Pollock is your mentor. (laughs) I don't know how this could be, but let's pretend Jackson Pollock is your mentor and that you follow Pollock, you kind of uh, almost (laughs) attempt to reincarnate Pollock. Eventually, you realize you're going to have to get away from Pollock to make your own work. And then when you go and visit Pollock canvases in museums, let's say in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, and you go visit Pollock's canvases, aren't they then not necessarily a way for you to create your own art, but instead a kind of talisman of urgency? Look, Pollock did it. He made his own voice. I love Pollock. I want to make my own voice. Is that a changed role in terms of artistic mentors? And it may be for Virgil here. I don't have any answers to any of these suppositions about why Virgil becomes the voice of urgency. But at the same time, I find it interesting that it is after his humiliation that he truly becomes the one who pushes the pilgrim on at every turn. Virgil says, there's a long ladder that you've yet to climb. It's not enough just to get away from. And what he says is, it's not enough for you to get away from these people, these guys, these ones down here. I translated it as these hypocrites because I think he's making reference specifically to the people in the sixth pouch. But you should know that many in commentary believe he's talking about all of the damned. It's not enough just to get away from these souls, like the whole landscape of Inferno. The reason that they say that is because of that line, there's a long ladder that you've yet to climb. There are several ways to read that line, and I have to kind of tell you a little bit of the plot, but let me just say that there is a long climb from the bottom of hell. We're heading toward the very bottom of hell. There's a long climb from that back up to the surface of the earth. Virgil could be talking about that climb. He may also, and this I will admit is how I read the line, he may also be giving you a glimpse of purgatory, which again, telling you the plot, is a giant mountain that you have to climb, a giant mountain with cornices, and on those cornices or ledges sit those purgating their sins. That may be the ladder Virgil refers to because there are ladders or steps between each of the cornices that they have to climb. I tend to think of that, and I also tend to think that that's what the reading of this line is because we're about to get a giant glimpse of purgatory 
in Canto 26 ahead of us. I really wish we were in 24, but in total Dantean technique, we're getting dropped a hint of something that lies ahead of us big time. And believe me, Mount Purgatory will function big time in Canto 26 ahead of us. That's how I tend to read it. But you should know that the final bit here is a kind of prompt toward more of the poem, whether it is the climb out of hell from the center of hell back to the surface of the earth, or the climb up Mount Purgatory, or the whole thing, the climb from the center of hell to the top of the earth, across to the earth, and then from that all the way to the top of purgatory. It's that whole climb. No matter what it is, this is a call to the whole poem. It's a call to say, there's a lot left to write. You're in Canto 24 of 100, buddy. Get up. You got to get going. If you get what I'm saying, Virgil says, force yourself to get going. Again, it's hard for me not to see that as writerly advice. The worst part of writing is writing. Trust me, having written my own memoir, Bookmarked, which took four years to write, trust me, it is the worst part of it, is sitting down to do it. And the only way you're ever going to do it is to do it. It's the same with painting. It's the same with sculpting. It's the same with composing. The worst part of it is the doing of it. I mean, it's also the most joyful part. It's also the most rewarding part, of course. But I mean that there is this way that you are faced with it and you realize that you've got to do it. I don't know a single working writer, and I have now met a lot of working writers in my life. I don't know a single working writer who doesn't treat writing as a job. You get up and you do it. You treat it not like some Hollywood fantasy of, oh, you know, you're up at 2 a.m. drinking scotch and writing. No, you get up and write. My husband and I write cookbooks for a living. That's what pays our mortgage. That's what pays for this podcast is our cookbook career. We're about to, to, we're into the editorial of our 36th cookbook. We may be about to sell our 37th cookbook. Well, we're in negotiations to do it. So we do this cookbook career so that the bills get paid. And let me tell you, I treat that cookbook career as a job. I get up, I have my coffee, I come to my desk, I start writing a cookbook. It may seem mundane in the face of the comedy, but it's how writing happens. And so Virgil says, if you get what I'm saying, force yourself to get going. Don't lie around under coverlets and on downy pillows. Nobody makes great art that way. Nobody even makes cookbooks, which I would tell you are not great art. Nobody even makes cookbooks that way. Let's finish out this passage. The pilgrim says, well, I got up pretending not to be out of breath as I was and said, go on. I'm strong and steadfast. Listen, we just climbed out of the pit of the hypocrites and the pilgrim is being a hypocrite. The pilgrim is pretending to be something he's not. He's pretending to be much more uh, strong and steadfast than he actually is. His lungs have been milked of all of their air. And furthermore, there may be even another play here. If Virgil is somehow a hypocrite, and we talked about this in the episodes of Hypocrisy, if Virgil is somehow a hypocrite, is the pilgrim poet Dante becoming more like him? Probably not, because they're not hypocrites in the same way. 
Dante here is a more standard hypocrite, pretending to be better than he is, pretending to be what he is not. Whereas, as we discussed with hypocrisy, there may be a way in which Virgil is a hypocrite because he saw the truth without accepting the truth, or he was able to verbalize or write the truth without understanding how much of the truth it was. It's a much more literary and theological notion of hypocrisy. If that's the case, then this one last joke is that Dante the Pilgrim is a low, common sort of hypocrite. That is one who just pretends to be something he's not as opposed to Virgil, who is a much more learned sort of hypocrite, in which case Virgil is again renovated or rejuvenated. And we should also note here, when Dante says, go on, I'm strong and steadfast, son forte e ardito, he's quoting, well, yes, Virgil. In fact, He's not quoting Virgil from the Aeneid. Oh, this is where it gets wild. He's quoting Virgil from Inferno. Way back in Canto 17, line 81, when the monster Garion, the monster of fraud, flies up onto the cliff face and Dante the Pilgrim recoils from having to get on the back of this monster, Virgil says, Be forte e ardito these same exact words and in one last crazy meta literary joke after virgil has been put in his place the poet quotes virgil again but not from anything virgil wrote but from what the poet wrote that virgil said wow we have entered fully onto a house of mirrors. We have entered into a place in which it's hard to tell who's who. And that's the point of the seventh Malabolgia ahead of us. So subscribe to this podcast. <laughs> I'm really setting you up for this seventh Malabolgia. I'm telling you. Set, read this podcast. Subscribe to it. Come back. There's so much more ahead and it's about to get, if you can believe this, it's about to get wilder. I love the notion that the pilgrim is quoting Virgil, not from Virgil, but from the poet's own writing. Oh my gosh, that has Virgil say these lines. Well, I'm, uh, it's a full house of mirrors, and it's going to become even worse of one. In fact, a nightmare of mirrors soon ahead of us in the seventh pit. So join in the fun. Come back. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.